and began to increase in earnest in the early 90s and so on, people are questioning what happened and why, and why do we have all this? So uh, he's, he was beyond even Eastern time, and by the time I got a chance to call him, it would have been 10 o'clock his time last night, so I thought, well, maybe I better not. But I, I'm anxious to talk to him and maybe send him the uh, Minor Prophet series that pretty well explains what is going on and why it is. But it's just really interesting that he wanted, I guess, I don't know what, I, what sermon he listened to or anything, but whatever it was, it prompted him to say, maybe there are some answers there that I don't have uh, uh, in terms of what's going on. Before we get into the sermon per se, and I'd like to get this part on tape as well, I revisited for a while this morning the Pentecost count, just to be absolutely sure we're correct. Uh, I, I want this to be right. You know, I have no bone to pick, brethren, one way or another. It doesn't make a bit of difference to me whether we keep this Sunday coming or next week. Uh, you know, I can take a shower and put a clothes on and haul my Bible over here either day. It doesn't matter to me from a personal standpoint whatsoever. Nor is it a point of ego or vanity. I just simply want to get it right. But there's a statement in here that uh, I think I touched on it, but I don't think that I really emphasized it. And the more I looked at it this morning, uh, it seemed to have a great deal of bearing is another important point in the proof of what we're doing. If you'll notice in Joshua 5, it doesn't mention here uh, the wave sheep at all, but it does mention that they ate of the old corn of the land, and they had, not, they had been instructed not to do that until after they had waved the sheep. So obviously, they had waived it. It did not need to be included in this brief account in Joshua 5 because it becomes self-evident that that's what had to have occurred or they couldn't have done what they did do. <clears throat> but let's look at this and emphasize a different point. Verse 11 of Joshua 5, And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover. Now, you remember, they were told to wave it in Leviticus 23 on the morrow after the Sabbath. It had to be a weekly Sabbath, as we show, as Leviticus 23 very clearly shows, because they were to count from the day after the Sabbath, seven more Sabbaths, and then the following Sunday, the 50th day, would be Pentecost. So it couldn't be a high Sabbath. It had to be a weekly Sabbath. And it said they were to wave it on the day after the Sabbath, and that's the only time that could be then, obviously, was Sunday, okay? So the morrow after the Sabbath, and there's no argument about whether it was day part or, or night part of the day, uh, the Sabbath ended at sunset, and the next day, beginning at sunset, was uh, the day after the Sabbath that they waved the sheaf. But there's something interesting here in verse 11. They ate it on the morrow after the Passover. Unleavened cakes. Well, they ate unleavened cakes. I think I pointed that out. Why? If it's okay to cook on a holy day, uh, the morrow after the Passover here would have had to have been the first day of unleavened bread. Quite obviously, they were eating unleavened bread. Didn't need to unless it was the first day of unleavened bread. 
and parched corn in the self-same day. What is the subject here? The Passover and eating of the land on the self-same day. I think we can go to Exodus 12 and show very clearly that God emphasizes the self-same day when he means the 24-hour period beginning with sunset the previous evening. He emphasizes, and the context here is only of the Passover, okay? Nothing's mentioned about wave sheaf. It's only about Passover. So the antecedent, the grammar, whatever you want to say here, is the Passover itself. And they ate those things in the self-same day. Said they came, in verse 10, kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at even, beginning of the 14th, and on the morrow, the self-same day, same period of time, they ate of the old corn, meaning they had waved the sheaf, and that was a Sunday. Now, let's see that back in Exodus 12. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but I wanted to pick this up as a very important element that I did not emphasize. <clears throat> in Exodus 12, it is very clear that they began to keep the Passover uh, on the 14th, into the 13th, at sundown. And they were to be ready to go that night as they ate the Passover, their loins girded and shoes on their feet and their staff in their hand, and, and to eat it in, in haste. And at midnight that night, as it shows later, uh, God destroyed the firstborn, and then the Mitzrayimites immediately said, Get out, get out. So let's look back here at verse 14 of chapter 12. And the day, this day, which day? There's been no change. They kept Passover at the beginning of the 14th at sunset. And that day, Passover day, was to be a memorial and a feast to the eternal throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance. And then he explains, seven days they were to eat unleavened bread from the first day to the seventh day. In verse 16, in the first day there shall be an holy convocation, and in the seventh day. Now notice verse 17. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Mitzrayim. Therefore shall you observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. He has to still be talking about the 14th daylight part, or the whole thing for that matter. Uh, because that was the one that was declared an ordinance in verse 14. Still speaking of the same day. Then he makes it very clear, verse 18, in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at even, the beginning, you shall eat unleavened bread until the one and twentieth day of the month at even. Seven days total. So if you start it at the beginning of the 14th and end it at the beginning of the 21st, end of the 20th, you have seven days there total. Why does Ezekiel 45 call it a feast, the Passover, a feast of seven days? Why does Numbers say seven days and the Passover that you killed on the first day? But the point is here, 
he makes it clear that it was the self-same day, the 14th. It wasn't the 15th. Don't get confused in Leviticus 23. It was the self-same day, the daylight portion included. Now, read again Joshua 5. They did eat, well, they kept the Passover on the 14th, beginning of the 14th, and they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the self-same day. Showing that he's talking about the 14th being the day that they did it. The self-same day. Same language, same word, and the context echoes that as well. So, self-same day here is very important. Why is it put in there if he were only counting 24-hour days, and this would have then have been Monday if you'd have had a Saturday night Passover? Uh, no, it can't be that way. The morrow simply means the daylight portion after the Passover service. And that's what he's referring to is the Passover service. They kept the Passover at evening. And on the morrow afterward, the next daylight period, self-same day, not a day later. Same day as the Passover. Why did he put self-same day if we'd have just been counting from sundown to sundown and not this referring to the Passover day itself? Wouldn't have had to include that. But he made it very clear in Exodus 12. We're talking about the same day after you kept the Passover the evening before. Here we're talking about the self-same day after they kept the Passover the evening before. He's consistent all the way through. All right, let's drop that little addendum. Uh, when people ask about the Pentecost count, you might include this sermon along with it to, to emphasize that if they ask for uh, Pentecost count time. Just throw this one on there with it as well since I started out with it and I wanted it on tape so we could do that. All right, let's go back to where we were uh, last Sabbath. You'll recall we went through, at least briefly, uh, the specs and the building of the Temple of Solomon. It's actually God's temple or house for God, but we call it simple, we call it Solomon's temple because he built it. That's a misnomer. It's like calling the book of Revelation, the revelation of St. John the Divine. No, it isn't. It's the revelation of Christ he gave to John. So, we can misapply a little bit pretty easily. But anyway, we saw the splendor of that temple and of the tons and tons of gold and silver and brass and, and iron and wood and stones and so on, uh, precious stones we expounded a little bit upon the meaning of the various symbols, the palm trees, the palm granites, the uh, cherubim, and so on about it. Now I want to go forward in time to another temple that the Bible talks about, and that is in Ezekiel 40. Uh, there has been a certain amount, amount of enigma over when this temple is to be built, uh, it has not been built to date. No one has attempted to build this temple described by Ezekiel. Uh, you, history of the temples is simple. The first, well, of course, was the tabernacle in the wilderness, a moving temple. Then you had that one built by Solomon. <clears throat> and then 
a building of another by Ezra and Nehemiah, and we'll get to that briefly. And then we have this one. I go here in part first because we will include Ezra somewhat in this, uh, and I have a reason for jumping ahead to Ezekiel 40 first. Uh, but the question is, is this in the end time of this present age, or is it millennial? And I have debated that back and forth and looked at a lot of different scriptures, and my, I think I've come down fairly firmly on the side of this being built prior to uh, Christ's return, prior to the millennium, by the end time church, and we'll get to some of that. But I want to go through, since this is a temple that God designed and gave the specs and the pattern to Ezekiel. Let's pick it up in chapter 40 and verse uh, 1 and 2. Part of the enigma on this is, is that from chapter 35, 6 on through 39, uh, it talks about Gog and Magog in the, the Valley of the Dry Bones there in 37 and so on. And is that referring to Israel during the millennium or Israel during the Great White Throne Judgment? Or does it have a spiritual application <coughs> for those spiritually dead first? <coughs> who come back to life, spiritually speaking, as a remnant of the church. Calls it the whole house of Israel. So there's, there's a certain amount of debate there of the timing. And some of those, as we have seen in the past, may be dual prophecies that actually happen twice, prior to the millennium and at the end of the millennium. So we won't get into all that since this is about the temples, but... Uh, understand that there's a certain amount of speculation perhaps involved here, and I don't know how much absolute proof can be given of the exact timing of this. I'll give you some information later that might help us see, or at least give us some strong food for thought. But notice here in chapter 40, first of all, the location. In the visions of God brought me into the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain by which was as the frame of a city on the south. So this is a vision that God brought to Ezekiel in the land of Israel, and we'll see later on that there's a city involved, and it turns out to be the city of Jerusalem. Uh, first question, if you want to get the location right, where do you see a very high mountain anywhere near uh, Jerusalem in the Middle East? There's just simply not one. In fact, Jerusalem itself sits upon some of the highest ground there. Uh, I, I wouldn't really call them mountains. Maybe you could, but I'm used to mountains. Uh, I mean, they call the Appalachians and, and the Blue Ridge mountains. And I guess they are. Uh, <laughs> but they're not mountains like we know mountains out here. Uh, still, they're mountains. But... Those are far superior to and higher than and more mountainous by far than anything you'll find in the nation of Israel over there today. <clears throat> so when he said he brought him into the land of Israel and set him upon a very high mountain, what does that mean? Maybe it means in relationship to the area or the city of Jerusalem, in which case I know of a fairly high promontory there, which is directly east of the site that I think is probably the site of the ancient Jerusalem. 
Uh, and Zechariah does say that it is east. Mount, uh, the Mount of Olives is east of Jerusalem. And there is one absolutely due east of where I think Jerusalem originally was. And it's fairly, fairly high by comparison. And it says it was framed as of a city on the south. Now, south of that, uh, you can pick up Cedar City. Uh, maybe he meant a very, very high mountain. I don't know. Uh, which could possibly be uh, Brian's Head, or uh, which is pretty much east. Or it could be, uh, I doubt it, but it possibly could be uh, Cedar Mountain, which I believe is Mount Hermon or was the original Mount Hermon, because the dew from that mountain come down over Zion, as the Psalms say it would do. But Zion is called a city as well, too. So if it were up on Cedar Mountain, south of that is the city of Zion with its pillars and, and, and uh, towers and so on. So I don't know exactly what he's talking about here, but it fits here far better than it fits in the Middle East. There's no very high mountain around Jerusalem. As I recall, uh, the Mount of Olives was, it might have been a hundred feet higher in elevation than the old city itself, maybe two, not much. It certainly wasn't very high by comparison. It would look, look like a hill, uh, or a hillock maybe, uh, by comparison to where you were standing in Jerusalem. So it certainly didn't fit this description. <clears throat> anyway, enough of that. Let's go on down a bit. Uh, they had a measuring reed, and he was to see this, verse 4, I shall show you, for to the intent that I might show them to you, are, are, that, are you brought here, declare all that you see to the house of Israel. So this vision was something that came to Ezekiel that he was to give to the house of Israel. Now, interestingly, Ezekiel is an end-time prophecy, and in fact, the last verse uh, says that the city would be called God is there ever after. So, it is very clearly an end-time book and was preserved for us to read here at the end time, for all Israel to be able to see if they want to, but he was to declare it anyway. since that was to be done, then let's do it. I'm not going to go through all of this for sake of time. It is interesting that with this one, he gives the dimensions and shows how it is to be built, but he doesn't go into gold and silver and how it was decorated much. Uh, We'll see that some of the same things that were used in terms of the decorative items were the same used in Solomon's day, But the gold and the silver isn't mentioned here at all. Uh, Maybe there's a reason for that. Ow. Excuse me. (laughs) That was involuntary. I hurt my knee playing football when I was 24, 25. And every once in a while, something goes out of place there. And it did yesterday as I was just walking through the house. And it hasn't gone back yet. So it pops. And and I can hardly stand on it for the moment. So, sorry. Anyway, he doesn't go into all that. Uh, Chapter 41, verse 4. Let's just hit a few highlights here. He measured the length, 20 cubits. This is speaking of the... uh, No, this is the Holy of Holies, I think, here. 
This is the most holy place. Uh, it says the end of verse 4. He measured the length 20 cubits, the breadth 20 cubits before the temple. And he said to me, this is the most holy place. You'll recall the altar in Solomon's temple was 20 cubits by 20 cubits. So there are some similarities, but the overall dimensions are very different than what uh, is listed there in terms of Solomon's temple. So it's speaking of a different temple, different design, different size. We won't go into all that, uh, but we give a, we're given a few clues. Verse 13, he measured the house a hundred cubits long. Uh, and they used here, clearly, uh, the long cubit, which was an arm's length to the elbow plus a hand. It was more like 24 inches instead of the 18 that we recognize as the common cubit. So, uh, 100 cubits long would make it 200 feet instead of, uh, what was it, the uh, 90-ish that Solomon's temple was. So, quite a bit bigger and, and different. Verse 18, let's see, And it was made with cherubims and palm trees, so that a palm tree was between a cherub and a cherub, and every cherub had two faces. So the face of a man was toward the palm tree on one side and the face of a young lion. Remember, it mentioned a lion as well, which I uh, tied together with Christ being the lion of, lion of Judah. So a young lion here, palm tree, cherubs, uh, same type of thing that we were reading. Verse 25, the doors of the temple, cherubims and palm trees, like as were made upon the walls, and there were thick planks upon the face of the porch without. So it's covered with wood, as was Solomon's, uh, but it doesn't mention it being covered with gold. Wood is as far as it goes. Uh, let's see, let's go to chapter 43, uh, beginning in verse 1. Afterward he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looks toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. So just as Christ came and uh, lit up the place and ate the sacrifice, sacrifices up with fire, uh, which we read at the dedication of the temple in Solomon's day, here he comes, and his voice was like the noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision that I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell upon my face. The glory of the Eternal came into the house by the way of the gate, whose prospect is toward the east. So Christ comes from the east into this temple uh, that we're discussing. Uh, and remember, the Mount of Olives also is east of Jerusalem. And, of course, Christ is going to return to the Mount of Olives and sit down there, as Zechariah points out to us, when he returns. And it will split in half. So the Spirit took me up, verse 5, and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Eternal filled the house. So this is a house that God designed, gave the vision to Ezekiel of the dimensions, and when it was built, he came there and his glory lit it up. So that's a prophecy for some time in the future, whether it be in this end-time age or millennial or whenever this was to be built. And I heard him speaking to me out of the house, and the man stood by me. 
And he said to me, Son of man, the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever, and my holy name shall the house of Israel no more defile, neither they nor their kings by their whoredom, nor by the carcasses of their kings in their high places. So once this temple is built, it is going to be in the spot that Christ is going to rule forever. And Israel will no longer defile it ever again. Now, I think it will be defiled, but this is written very carefully. We'll get to Daniel, and we'll find that perhaps if this temple is the one spoken of for this day and age, uh, the Gentiles defile it. Here he says Israel won't, but he doesn't say it will not be defiled. But it is in the location that he is always going to rule from. The Mount of Olives and Jerusalem. <clears throat> we'll see that later on as we go on, that that is the location for sure. And he is going to dwell in the midst of, it, of Israel forever. Now, if we build this temple, and if we flee from it when the abomination of desolation is set up, Christ will still be with us. But you find in Scripture that Zion and Jerusalem are tied together very closely. Even place one place says Zion is Jerusalem, or Jerusalem is Zion. So even though it covers a fairly good size uh, geographical area, they're spoken of as the same. So if we remove to Zion, uh, it's part of the Jerusalem area. So Christ says he'll dwell with us, and he would be there with us, and he would still even be in that sense, Jerusalem, just a, lo a different bit of location from where the uh, abomination of desolation is set up. So I'm, I'm giving you a little background first, where we will head later in Daniel and other scriptures, that it doesn't conflict with what is being said here. He'll fill it with his glory, and it is the place, doesn't say he will rule continuously there right here, but that Israel will never be allowed to defile it. And the subject here, of course, is Israel. Go on down to verse 10. Uh, well, verse 9, uh, speaking of Israel, Now let them put away their whoredoms and the carcasses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in the midst of them forever. So whoever he's speaking of here in terms of the Israelites, whatever age, he says that they are to get rid of the carcasses of their kings who were not righteous, and that he would dwell there. He will not dwell with unrighteousness, only with righteousness. So the evil has to be put away for him to come and dwell in glory. Verse 10, You son of man, show the house to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the pattern. So he gave the pattern here. We didn't go through it in detail uh, for sake of time. I, I want to get an overview. But this was to be shown. And if they be ashamed of all that they have done. So this is a temple that is built partially with the purpose of making a judgment upon the deeds of the people of Israel a people who should be ashamed of what they are. 
And based upon their attitude, what follows is stated. If they be ashamed of all that they have done. Notice that we have been talking about how carefully God built the mobile temple, the ark of the tabernacle. How carefully and how splendidly he built Solomon's temple. And here he gives the dimensions and some of the decoration, but he focuses on conduct. Just as he focused in Solomon's day upon the conduct of the priests and the people who came there, he focuses again on the conduct of the people. So this is a people who have not been living in righteousness, obviously, for a long time. This is a people who have something to be ashamed of. If they be ashamed of all that they have done, show them the form of the house and the fashion thereof, how God has built it, what God has done. The fashion and the goings out thereof and the comings and ends thereof and all the forms thereof and all the ordinances or the rules and regulations of it, and all the forms thereof, and all the laws thereof, and write it in their sight, that they may keep the whole form thereof, and all the ordinance thereof, and do them. So God is laying out a code of conduct here, in terms of this temple. This is the law of the house. Upon the top of the mountain, the whole limit thereof, round about, shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house without going into all the details about the various rules and regulations, the overall thing is holiness. That's what God is concerned with. Holiness encompasses all of the rules and regulations of God throughout the Bible. The sum of the Bible is holiness, if properly kept. So, that's the bottom line. And then they had the altar, and here it was only uh, the cubit is a cubit and a handbreadth, showing that it was the, the 25-inch one, or at least they, they're not sure. There was about a 21-inch and a almost 25-inch plus the 18, so close to two feet anyway. Now let's go to, uh, where am I? I got ahead of what I wrote down in my notes. Let's go to chapter 44 and pick it up in verse 4. Then brought he me, the, he me the way of the north gate before the house, and I looked, and behold, the, eternal, the glory of the eternal filled the house of the eternal, and I fell upon my face. So it's called here the house of the eternal. The eternal said to me, Son of man, mark well, carefully, and behold with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the ordinances of the house of the eternal and all the laws thereof and mark well the entering in of the house with every going forth of the sanctuary. And you shall say to the rebellious, even to the house of Israel, thus says the eternal God, house of Israel, let it suffice you for all your, of, of all your abominations. So this temple is to be used in the process of telling the nations of Israel their sins. Now think forward a little bit. 
When in this end time is God going to shame all Israel of their sins? Herbert Armstrong gave a fairly mild calling uh, ministry. Now, he got strong at times, but he didn't get strong like I think the two witnesses will have to be strong at the end time. Going first to the house of Israel and shaming them of their sins from this temple, it appears. When, in this age, in the end time, will it be time to shame Israel and to bring an assessment of their sins and how they have lived. That's the time that is earmarked in quite a few different scriptures. To the rebellious. Verse 7, In that you have brought into my sanctuary strangers, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary, to pollute it, even my house, and you offer my bread. When does Daniel say that the sanctuary is going to be polluted? Beginning of the tribulation. Same day the two witnesses begin to preach to the world. So, uh, we'll read about his sanctuary being defiled in Daniel 8 and 9 and in 11. And it's also mentioned in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. So that appears to be the timing here. You've not kept the charge of my holy things, but you've set keepers of my charge in my sanctuary for yourselves. This could possibly even go back and pick up worldwide, where we were not supposed to, we're not what we were supposed to be. I mean, it's only a few chapters back here to Ezekiel 34, combined with Jeremiah 23, to show that the church and the ministry was not what it was supposed to be, and that was part of the reason God blew the church apart. So, here he says it's going to be defiled. <clears throat> uh, verse 10, The Levites that are gone away far from me, when Israel went astray, so speaking of the church, which went astray away from me after their idols, they shall even bear their iniquity. Verse 13, It shall not come near to me to do the office of a priest to me, nor to come near to any of my holy things, if they're part of that that has departed. But I will make them keepers of the charge of the house for all the service thereof and for all that shall be done therein. But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, that kept the charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near to me to minister to me. So the ministry went away in this end time. But there are certain ones that he refers to as the sons of Zadok. And the word Zadok means righteousness. So a righteous ministry... A remnant will be here. And then he goes on to mention some of the things that they must live up to. Uh, verse 19, And when they go forth into the outer court, even into the outer court to the people, they shall put off their garments wherein they ministered, and lay them in the holy chambers, and they shall put on other garments, and they shall not sanctify the people with their garments." Neither shall they shave their heads, nor suffer their locks to grow long. They shall only pull or barber their heads. So there's a certain conduct required of the priests in this temple. Neither shall they take for their wives a widow, nor her that is put away. 
But they shall take maidens of the seed of the house of Israel, or a widow that had a priest before. So this priesthood he's speaking of could only marry a virgin of Israel or a woman who had been married to a priest before he died. Only that kind of widow. And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and profane, and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. There's Haggai, uh, where God mentions that ask the priests, you know, if you touch it and you're holy, does it become holy? No. But if you're unclean and touch it, it becomes unclean. So the same thing is laid out right here. And in controversy, they shall stand in judgment. So the priests, and this has been true in every administration that God has had, from Adam and Eve on down. They shall stand in judgment. So you do have men here who are ones who make decisions in time of controversy. His own eyes, but they are to discern the clean and the unclean, and they are to settle controversies. So there is a form, there is organization, and there is a status given to the priests to do that very thing. And they shall judge it according to my judgments, and they shall keep my laws and my statutes in all my assemblies. Wherever people gather uh, for Sabbath services, for new moons, or whatever, uh, they'll keep the law of God, and they shall hallow my Sabbaths, and not decisions on that. <clears throat> Verse 30 is interesting. And the first of all the firstfruits of all things, and every oblation of all, of every sort of your oblations, shall be the priests. You shall also give to the priests the first of your dough, that he may cause the blessing to rest in your house. Uh, interestingly, Christ is the first of the firstfruits, and they were to bring the firstfruits of all things to God. And the symbolism of the firstfruits uh, we won't get into today. Uh, maybe that's for tomorrow, uh, being the Feast of Pentecost, or first fruits. But it is mentioned here. Let's see, what else did I want to pick up? Uh, let's go to 47. Afterward he brought me again to the door of the house, and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward, for the forefront of the house stood toward the east, toward the Mount of Olives, uh, and the waters came down from under from the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. So facing east, and the waters came out on the, the south side and apparently proceeded east from there. Uh, then brought me he out of the way of the gate northward and led me about the way of the water under the outer gate by the way that looks eastward. And behold, there ran out waters on the right side. And then it talks about he walked out a thousand cubits and it came to his ankles and another thousand and came up to the knees and a thousand into the loins and another thousand and there's a river that he, he had to swim that we couldn't walk anymore. Uh, I find that interesting, the area that we consider possibly being the Jerusalem originally does have a, a very flat area that's very shallow and slowly goes down to an old creek bed and the dimensions are about right. Now those are more uh, a little east and south in terms of, of the area, but it does say here somewhere that it goes down into the desert. I don't know whether I'll pick that up if I go through here or not. 
but if it came out to the east and then ran down and around and south, uh, it could go from there into the desert. So, but maybe that doesn't fit exactly the way the geography is at the moment, but it sure fits better than over in the Middle East uh, because Jerusalem there is up on a hill and it's hilly all the way around it. There's no, there's no place that's flat like that whatsoever. So, I don't know that I can fit it exactly here, but I can sure fit it a whole lot better than I can over there, put it that way. Uh, talks about how, well, it does in verse 8. Then it said to me, these waters issue out, out toward the east country and go down into the desert and go into the sea, which being forth, brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. Uh, the rivers mostly in this area go toward the south, toward the Colorado River, and then later on down into the sea uh, through the desert. The exception is the severe river which goes north uh, out of the land of or area of Zion and Cedar Mountain. So they do go out in all directions. Cold Creek even goes west down off Cedar Mountain. So which ones is he speaking of? I don't know for sure. Anyway, uh, I wanted to get a little bit into the size of this, I think. But I don't want to go into all that he, when he divided, it says when you divide it up to the tribes of Israel, I don't want to go through all those borders. But it talks about on the north to the sea, you have there the Great Salt Lake, which is a sea. Uh, used to be far, far greater in size than it is today. I mean, the salt flats all the way to Nevada and down through the Great Basin, they call it, of Nevada, was a sea. And uh, if you measure from there, just about the south end of the Great Salt Lake, maybe a little bit south from there as it presently stands, you have the dimensions that Ezekiel talks about here. And then it talks about well, let's see here in verse chapter 47, it mentions that. <clears throat> verse 13, Thus says the eternal God, This shall be the border whereby you shall inherit the land according to the twelve tribes, Joseph having two portions, Ephraim and Manasseh. And you shall inherit it one as well as another concerning the which I lifted up my hand to give it unto your fathers. And this land shall fall unto you for inheritance. This shall be the border of the land toward the north uh, from the great sea, the way of Hathlon, and we don't know where those cities were at that time. Uh, and that's the north side is the Great Sea. That easily could be the Great Salt Lake. If you go north from Israel in the Middle East, uh, there's no sea at all. Just not there. And let's see. On the east side, verse 18, you shall measure from Haran to from Damascus. All of these places originally were over here. I believe that. We'll find a map one of these days that's going to show that. Uh, so everything is set in one area, and you have all this uh, mirror image that has been created in the Middle East. Con uh, Constantine's mother did a lot of it. But, I mean, she went in and named places after biblical names that didn't have them before. And that was in the 300s A.D., long after Christ uh, was killed and resurrected and the church had 
been established and so on. And toward the East Sea is uh, the east side. If you look at ancient maps and some of the things that the geologists show, uh, there was a sea to the east of this area as well. Uh, the Cretaceous Seaway came right up through this area and had some high areas in it, showing that uh, it could go to the ocean from here. It was navigable. And the south side, verse 19, southward from Tamar even to the waters of strife, about the same distance from the Great Salt Lake on the north, you have the Grand Canyon and the waters of strife on the south, known for its rapids and so on. Uh, waters very much of strife, if you look at them and see the rapids going through there. You don't have anything like that uh, in the Middle East at all. It's just not there. In verse 20, the west side also shall be the great sea from the border till a man come over against Hamath and so on. This is the west side. Uh, the edge of the Great Basin and the original Salt Sea to the west is about the same distance uh, as almost to the Nevada border, not quite. So you have an area here, if you chase out the distances, that goes from about the south end of the Great Salt Lake to the Colorado River that goes into the sea, and you have a sea on the west and a sea on the east. You don't have that in the Middle East. So I think it is in this area, uh, undoubtedly. Uh, the when is still perhaps a bit of an enigma that we'll discuss. Chapter 48. Uh, See, I wanted to pick up something, I guess, in 14. Uh, they shall not sell of it, neither exchange nor alienate the first fruits of the land, for it is holy to the eternal. There again, we have the first fruits mentioned as being holy to the eternal. And we'll probably see some of, something about that tomorrow, so I won't go there today. But notice that the first fruits is mentioned here in the context of this temple. Then it talks about the borders of the nations, or the, the uh, tribes. We won't go there. But let's go to the last verse of Ezekiel 48. It gives some dimensions. It says it was round about 18,000 measures. And the name of the city from that day shall be, the eternal is there. So whatever this is describing, the note at the end is that God is going to be there. And that'll be the name of the city. The eternal is there. Uh, that is basically the same thing as Emmanuel. God with us, or God is there. Uh, very similar, a little bit of different expression, but it means exactly the same thing. God with us, God living with us, the eternal is there. And we have verses that show that Christ is indeed going to come in the end time to his people. We've gone over that many times in Zechariah 2. During the time of the two witnesses and the gathering of the uh, remnant, he says, I will come and dwell with you in Zion. So that could indicate possibly that this is an end time, not a millennial uh, building that is made here. Now from there, what time have I got? Wow, this is going by rapidly. 
Let's go to the book of Ezra for a, a start here. Because Ezra mentions Zerubbabel and Joshua having built this temple in the time of Cyrus, the king of Persia, who had taken over from the Babylonians. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar uh, died. His son, Belshazzar, drank from the, uh, the cups, the vessels of gold that was in the storehouses there in Babylon that had come from God's temple. And then he saw the handwriting on the wall, uh, many, many tickle you farzen, and that meant you're going to be tickled with death tonight. <laughs> and he was. So, those holy vessels have to be handled with care and perhaps handled by the right people. Remember the Ark of the Covenant and how the poor guy reached out to try to steady it. He got zapped on the spot. And Belshazzar drank out of the holy vessel and died that night. Um, if we find the Ark of the Covenant, I'll call and ask for volunteers to pick it up and move it. Anybody feeling real squirrely today? <laughs> Want to come move the Ark for us? Uh, we'll see. Anyway, let's pick this up a little bit in Ezra. I don't want to spend a great deal of time here. He doesn't give dimensions here. Uh, he does talk quite a bit about uh, who is involved. The Eternal stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Eternal God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So this Gentile king was given uh, a calling, a job to do from God himself. Now, why would God use a Gentile king who knew not God uh, to do this? It's kind of a, a, an odd thing in a way, isn't it? Why didn't he just come to his own righteous people and say, uh, this is a job I have for you to do. No, uh, he chose a Gentile king, somebody who was not connected with Israel itself in any way. This particular king, however, happened to have the treasures that came from Jerusalem when it was destroyed and they were taken captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know that they took all that was there. Some apparently was hidden and may not have been discovered. But they did take the temple vessels for sure. And that is a matter of record in Scripture, and it is right here as well, in part. But this man realized he had uh, a calling to build a house at Jerusalem. Now, as we go through here, you'll notice that he did not go to the site. He did not do the building or oversee it himself. He had a calling that this was to be done, and under his authority it was to be done, but he didn't do it himself. He wasn't involved in it. He merely had the authority to say, this can be done within Jerusalem, <coughs> and here are the things to use to go do it. Okay? Let's see that. Verse 3. Even he himself said, 
Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the eternal God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. Cyrus did not worship him, did not know him, but he recognized that the God of Israel was in Jerusalem. Okay? This is important background when you get into Isaiah 44 and 45, which is an end-time prophecy for today. Who is there of all of God's people who is willing to do this? Were you to ask that question today of all the membership of the church, you'd have to say, who's willing to come to Jerusalem, the true one, by the way, and build the temple of God? It wouldn't be everybody. We'll find out it's only a remnant that God stirs. And the same was basically true here. Who is it that will come do this? Verse 4, And whosoever remains in any place where he sojourns, where he happens to be, where he's living, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts besides the free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the eternal which is in Jerusalem. Now some would say that this account in Ezra of the building of the temple and the account of the building of the walls, the city of Jerusalem in Nehemiah, uh, was only back then, and that Haggai and Zechariah and the story given there is merely a repeat of Ezra and Nehemiah. Just as in some cases you have stories in, uh, say, Samuel and Kings, which are repeated in Chronicles. You have the same story told. So that has been done in the past uh, of physical things. We read some in Kings and some in or Samuel and some in Chronicles, uh, parallel stories of the building of Solomon's temple. So they would say that this is all just history. That's all it was speaking of. But I think we're going to see very clearly that it is right at the end time. Has to be. Uh, the people who are mentioned here are also mentioned in Haggai and Zechariah, and God gives the timing there as being the end time. We've seen that before, and I'll probably go and show that again. So, this is a historical account in Ezra and Nehemiah. It is a prophecy of the same thing happening again in Haggai and Zechariah. Not just a repeat of the history, but is a prophecy of the same thing being done. And all that were about them strengthened their hands, verse 6, with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, and with beasts, and with precious things, beside all that was willingly offered. And then Cyrus the king brought out the vessels of the house of the eternal, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem, and had put them in the house of his gods. And Cyrus brought those uh, forth by the hand of the treasure, and numbered them to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Sheshbazar uh, was the Persian name for Zerubbabel, uh, of, and it mentions Zerubbabel later on here as a, as a Hebrew name. But that's what they called Zerubbabel then. Uh, Thirty chargers of gold, a thousand chargers of silver, and twenty-nine knives, 
30 basins of gold, silver basins, and so on. All the vessels of the gold and silver were 5,400. doesn't name them all here, but gives you a total. 5,400 vessels of silver and gold. That's more than you got in your china closet of glass or silver and gold for sure. All these did Zerubbabel or Sheshbazar bring up with them of the captivity that were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. That was actually probably by the time you didn't want those damaged. So they had to be packed very carefully. And 5,400 packages packed carefully would be quite a shipment. UPS would be overwhelmed. But there were about 42,000 people that came out. So uh, this, this could be handled. It wasn't too big a problem. Would have taken some pretty good-sized ships to haul it, for that matter. That many people and that many uh, vessels. Uh, chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, those who came with uh, Ezra included Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, and so on. So some of the names that you will see through the chapter of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then it talks about how they laid the foundation of the house and then how enemies came and it was delayed for possibly 14 years, maybe 17. It's a little unclear in the record in chapter 4 and verse 24. They ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, and it ceased unto the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So you can derive the amount of time there between Cyrus and Darius. And, but it's a little unclear as to exactly what years those were. But it appears to be either 14 years or 17 years. I find it interesting, at least. I don't know whether it means anything or not. But uh, from the time that the information about all of these things that have to happen in Haggai and Zechariah and Ezra and Nehemiah uh, came to be understood was in 1996. And this information was essentially accepted up until a time that uh, some doubts began to creep in in a certain organization around 98, and I was shipped out to Denver. Uh, to manage uh, most of the Mid Middle West and Rockies and so on. And in 2000, that relationship ceased. And from there, we began this organization in the fall of 2000. But we were completely rejected, and most of this information that had been given about the building of the temple and so on was tabled or put on the back burner or consigned to the past. We are now 14 years later. So was there a cessation of growth and development toward the building of the temple from the time that it was revealed or became knowledge a part of knowledge and then rejected in 2000? Uh, maybe we're getting close to the time when it would uh, revive again and continue. Uh, Maybe that's why God left it a little confusing here, whether it was 14 years or 17 years in the chronology. If it's 17, we might have three years left before we get forward with the project. If it's 14, then things ought to start happening pretty quick. This is only speculation, please. I'm not preaching that, but it's just ironic in a way 
that uh, we're at a beginning of a time when this could be. Someone mentioned before the sermon started uh, something I found interesting. I don't know whether it means anything whatsoever or not. But if the original church began in 1930, I mean in 33 A.D., and Christ died in 33, which I think is a distinct possibility, and I think we went into that at some point, instead of 31, which uh, the church accepted for a long time. But it may very well have been in 33 A.D. And the Worldwide Church of God was thereafter organized in 1933 A.D., 1900 years later. But 2014 brings us 81 more years from 93 to 2014. That's 1981 years since the the church may have originally been formed until this year. Uh, 81 is 9 times 9, which is judgment. Number 9 is judgment. And 9 times 9 is 81. So here from the time the church started, uh, perhaps 1900 years after Christ lived, uh, 81 years later might be a time of judgment. I thought that was a very interesting thing. There is a man that I think may be involved as well who is 81 this year, uh, 9 times 9, and perhaps there's a judgment there of whether things go forward or not. Wild speculation. But uh, the, int- the numbers are very interesting. Uh, tie that together with the time uh, that Daniel speaks of, that the church would be, or that Israel would be in captivity 70 years in Babylon, is spoken of by Daniel. And Daniel is an end time book. I find it interesting that the church began in Babylon in 1933, or was organized. Seventy years later brings us to January of 2003. And that is the month that we divided this land up and God allowed us to take possession of a small type of what is to come, but to get out of Babylon and have a community that is set up under God's rules. We don't all live up to them every day, but at least they're set up that way. And we were allowed to come out of Babylon and set this up, according to Micah 4 and other scriptures, which say, gather yourselves before the financial collapse of Zephaniah 1, uh, and so on. So that fit very well as well. So maybe God is having us act out some of these things ahead of time uh, to show not anything about us being important, but maybe he used us as someone to use to identify the area, to identify to some degree the timing of what is about to happen. I don't know, very interesting numbers. They all fit together. I didn't intend to get into that, but there you have it. Now, I'm out of time, so I think we're going to stop right here Uh, in Ezra and pick it up at another time. I'm not sure where we'll go tomorrow as yet, whether with some more of this that ties in with it or uh, something separate for Pentecost itself and then pick this up later. But 
we'll know by tomorrow uh, where that goes. So let's stop there for today.